Welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hello there. So one of the many reasons why I absolutely enjoy and love, maybe strong word, but putting together podcasts and interviewing people is because it gives me the opportunity to talk to some amazing people, really interesting people, people that I absolutely admire. And without the podcast as a vehicle, perhaps to connect with them, I wouldn't be able to do it. And that is definitely the case with this week's episode. I was reading the book Paradox of Choice recently and it connected with me like only maybe five or six other books have over the years and I said I'd try and see if at all possible would I be able to connect with the author Barry Schwartz and see if he'd be interested in doing a podcast and when I got a response back from Barry about an hour after the email agreeing to come onto the show I was very very happy and from there we decided to get that scheduled quite quickly and record it which happened last week and now I'm sharing it with you guys and it definitely was an episode that didn't disappoint in any way in fact I took way more from it than I expected and I even got a one minute Monday out of it from Barry which is at the end and will be next week's one minute Monday all going well Barry has a secret he kind of wants to share with you guys and so much so he writes books about it and he's very keen to let people know what they're probably a little bit aware of already but are maybe not willing to accept and that he believes important things happen in life by chance and that luck has a huge role to play and that's just a couple of the things that came out of the episode that I didn't expect we'd talk about so I really hope you enjoy this one it's a powerful episode and more than ever because Barry is such a a well-known name I'd love if you shared this within your network and that's where the growth can happen it can maybe get picked up by your friends or people that have read the book Paradox of Choice or some of his other work Why We Work is another one and that'll have a ripple effect out and others will hear it and that'll be really beneficial to helping the message get out there not only about decision making that people can get better at and I definitely have improved on how I make choices since I read the book but there's lots of other takeaways that could be of value as well so a bit of a long intro sorry about that important stuff I wanted to share as always I really hope you enjoy this one with Barry Schwartz and thank you for listening good luck hey folks welcome to a very special episode of one percent better and this one is with a psychologist a professor researcher author speaker lots of accolades lots of uh, titles uh, and i'm happy to delighted to introduce barry schwartz to the podcast barry welcome along it's a pleasure to be with you thanks so much i was delighted and surprised when you agreed to to come on to the show so um it's always great to talk to somebody that uh, i have a lot of admiration for when when i said all those titles and i like to ask folks this question that have a lot of different titles is there any one title that resonates most with you that jumps out or that you kind of maybe squirmish under <laughs> well it's interesting you know i i spent my i've spent 50 years as a college professor that is to say a teacher so that's what I think of myself as. But, you know, the the fact that some of the books I've written have gotten a fair amount of attention, I guess, makes me think that maybe I should nowadays especially think of myself as a writer. But but I I don't care what I, how I'm labeled. 
they're all they're all positive ones for sure. Well, you know, like uh, people can say a writer of really bad books, you know, that wouldn't be so positive. Well, talk to me about the writing. So just to dive in on that, I'm fascinated about the, the actual practice of writing as well. So when did writing become part of what you do or become a title? How did that uh, emerge? Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, I I had a lab. I did experiments. I s- published in journals, which is what psychologists are supposed to do. And then I had a sabbatical in 1982 or 1983, a long time ago. And I spent it at Harvard University. And my plan was to learn some economics and to learn some evolutionary biology, because Mm. I was planning when I came back to teach a course on how aspects of economics and aspects of biology and aspects of psychology were basically singing the same tune. And it was a tune that was wrong, but nonetheless, they were all singing it and they were essentially supporting one another. And so I took classes and I um, started thinking about what this course would look like. And then as the year started to end, I decided I would just sit down and kind of make write a personal sort of narrative of what I had learned. And by the time I was done, I had written 200 pages. And it suddenly occurred to me that maybe this could be a book. And it was very different from anything I had done before because it was meant for popular audiences, not professional ones. It was more speculative and less tied tightly to data. And I really liked doing it. You know, in effect, what I was doing was writing the way I would teach undergraduate students. Like I was having an extended conversation with an imaginary audience of 19 and 20 year old, not terribly sophisticated folks. And I really liked it. And it ended up being a book called The Battle for Human Nature, uh, a book I'm quite proud of. And um, and it kind of changed my life because I discovered that, you know, this is the kind of work I like to do. This is the kind of writing I like to do. It changed the things I taught. It changed how I taught them. And, you know, since then, I've written another five books, all of them pitched at general audiences rather than professional audiences. And I should say you get no points in my field for doing that. It, it, you know, most people think of this as a colossal waste of time that what you're supposed to be doing is uh, adding another brick to the wall uh, and you build knowledge one tiny brick by another tiny brick. And these general books that are often speculative are just a distraction. Um, But I decided it was, it was the distraction that I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. So, so it happened sort of by accident and, um, and I haven't looked back and I haven't had any regrets very good and regret is something we'll definitely talk a little bit about uh, in, in, in a bit um taking it further back uh, psychology was when i like to ask folks the kind of traditional maybe question of what did you want to be when you grew up and and the reason i'm asking the psychologist question is when i was growing up psychology was my number one choice in university i didn't get it um there's certainly a bit of regret there around that but over the last maybe decade or so i've kind of come back around to that area and a lot of what I do in the podcast a lot of what I do in executive coaching and life coaching and stuff kind of delves into to that area and I have a huge passion for it so always interested in if that was something that was your passion or or, or where that came from even 
Well, that's another, I, I guess, I mean, it's an interesting story to me. So I grew up wanting to be a baseball star for the New York Yankees. I grew up in New York, and I, my, my vision was that I would replace one of my heroes when he aged out. It was a complete fantasy. I wasn't any good, you know, but that's what sort of kept me going. Uh, and then I thought I would be, become a writer, a journalist. And in the first uh, English course, writing course I took in college, I got terrible grades on the first few essays I turned in. So that what didn't look too promising. And at the same time, I was taking an introductory psychology course, and I had no idea what psychology even was. I took it because it fit into my schedule. And it happened to be taught by one of the superstar psychology teachers on the planet. Uh, and so I fell completely head over heels in love with psychology. And I spent the rest of my time at college taking every class in psychology I could and then went straight from there to graduate school and straight from there to a professorship. So, you know, I, I kind of I fell into my passion quite by accident. Um, and uh, people knew a lot less about what various programs of study might contain back in those days than they do now. You know, the amount of information that was communicated to people about what they were letting themselves in for was incredibly impoverished compared to what people expect to know these days. Yeah, very interesting. And a lot of the time, again, when I talk to people on the show that have become experts in their, their field, it's rare that they've kind of knew exactly what they wanted to be from a very young age it kind of happened in some ways certainly by accident and, and that's that's interesting so you mentioned uh obviously through your academic life learning is very important and i noticed in in a number of your books the word learning is in there is is that a, a value obviously of yours when did that become something so deep within you well so when i started to study psychology the particular branch field that I got in, deeply involved in uh, is, is a field that was created by a guy named B.F. Skinner, who back at that time was probably the most famous psychologist there was. And he was all about teaching rats and pigeons to do things for rewards. And his argument was that if you understood this, you understood everything there was to understand about human beings, not just rats and pigeons. And I, I thought, but it was called, this was within what was called the psychology of learning. How does learning happen? And the basic assumption was the way learning happens is people do things, good things happen afterwards, they do them again. People do other things, bad things happen afterwards, they stop doing them. So the environment essentially teaches you by giving you good and bad consequences of the various things you do. So, so that was what I was. Um, that's what I studied. Uh, I wrote a textbook on the psychology of learning. But what was interesting to me about Skinner was not his story about learning, but rather his uh, understanding of what human nature was. We are the kinds of creatures who do for whom everything is transactional, to use mm -hmm. the current term. It's all about, you know, if I do this, what do I get? 
Uh, and I, again, I, I thought this was really quite a limited view about of what people actually cared about. And so that's what, what attracted me was that this was the most prominent psychologist there was and somebody able to make very powerful arguments in support of his position. And so I thought my task was to develop good arguments against it. And that required really immersing myself in the discipline. So that's what I did. And that's what I taught for, you know, many years after I finished my PhD. And slowly my interest shifted away from that and into more broader things like the relation between psychology and economics, uh, which I guess comes closer to what people who know anything about my work might think of what I, you know, what I do. When I kind of get interested in a topic, I then tend to throw myself very much deep into it and something underlying kind of drives me to try and almost uncover something about it that maybe nobody else knows or that doesn't, you know, hasn't already been discovered. Is that something that drives you to kind of get to where you want to get to? Maybe we talk about some of the books and findings, maybe interested in, in how how you're driven, I suppose. Well, so I think I I think that there's too much emphasis uh, in psychology on collecting new empirical facts about the things people care about. And I don't think facts are irrelevant. They're obviously important. They constrain. But I'm much more interested in how we understand those facts and how we weave those facts together into a story, a narrative about some aspect of human nature. Uh, and so my books are all about that. In none of my books for, for um, general audiences is my work, my own research prominent. What I do is read other people's research and then try to tell a story about what the implications are of all of this research when you put it together. And I try to tell that story in a way that is accessible to people who don't have much training. So I think we under, these days especially, undervalue the efforts to make individual discoveries meaningful, and we overvalue the effort to make individual discoveries. Mm, so there's probably more, too much of an emphasis on trying to identify new facts. and uh, Exactly, okay. exactly. And, you know, and I think in other areas, you know, like in physics or in molecular biology, where the basic framework for understanding is well established, you don't need to tell the narrative because the narrative is already there and everyone kind of agrees to it. Uh, so just uncovering new facts is important because they will all, almost automatically have a place in that narrative. But there's much less certain social sciences than there is in the natural sciences. So a fact, an isolated fact by itself begs for some kind of an interpretation and some kind of a connection. Uh, but I think the social sciences have simply slavishly copied the natural sciences. And if facts work for the natural sciences, then facts is what the, what the social scientists should be looking for. Very interested in learning about people's core values and their set, set of values that they, they have that drives them. At what point in your life do you feel that you were able to identify what those were or, or are they continuing to change and evolve? Well, I, I, I must say that 
I can give you a retrospective story about that, which would be, you know, it would be sensible, but it wouldn't be true. Uh, I basically followed my nose. Something, I read something or heard about something that really struck me as interesting and potentially important. I would think about it. I would see how it connected to other things I knew or how it seemed to contradict what other people claimed to know. And I would try to build a picture that incorporated this new stuff. And, you know, the nice thing about teaching undergraduates is that for the most part, and I spent almost my entire career at a place that only has undergraduates. So for the most part, it's different in Europe. For the most part, they're not especially interested in specializing. Right. You know, they, they, they are not committed to being psychologists or economists at a, age 18. They aren't committed necessarily to anything. And so if you're going to keep them from falling asleep or simply skipping your class, you have to take some pains to show them how the stuff you're talking about connects to other things and especially connects to things in their own life and, and experience. So I was already kind of pitched in that direction because of who my audience was. But it was also, I think, very much what my natural inclination was. So so I followed my nose. I didn't have um, a grand plan. I can look back on half a century of work and tell you what the grand plan was. But it certainly wasn't what was operating while I was making decisions about about what to do. I mean, I wanted to do stuff that I thought mattered. And I think the reason that that's important is that I have a deep belief that most people in their lives want to do things that matter. Uh, And so when we think that jobs are just about paychecks, we are underappreciating the other things people care about when they're deciding what career path to follow or what job to take. Yes, you have to pay your bills, but you much rather pay your bills doing something that makes a difference than doing something that matters to no one. Uh, And I think, you know, the way the workplace has evolved, we've made it harder and harder for people to find work that is meaningful because the assumption has been that meaning doesn't matter. What matters is a paycheck. So if you pay people, you can basically ask them to do anything and they'll do it. Uh, And, uh, you know, this is a mistaken view But if all you see around you is, you know, call centers and um, assembly lines and fast food, then you sort of come to the conclusion that people work only to get paid. Mm. Yeah, and and I think that's the premise in your most recent book is why we work, I I think. Yeah, and and, and definitely want to talk a bit about that because in in a lot of the work I do around coaching um, leaders, emerging leaders, there's a definitely a m- much more of a focus on meaningful work, work with purpose, purpose-driven organizations, all of that, right? And there's a definitely a part of me that from talking and working with these people, that's what they want. And then obviously on the other side, an organization trying to be authentic around that and make it real is is something that's still a question mark. Maybe talk to me a bit about why do you think that now is is a becoming so mainstream and popular? Well, I think there are a few reasons, and all of this is speculation. One reason is that we're living in good times. And I think when you're living in good times, you can start sort of imagining 
spending your waking life doing something other than putting food on the table. All it takes is a major economic downturn, and all of a sudden it will become true that people are working to get paid. Right. So we are the beneficiaries of this luxury of, and when I say we, I mean mostly, you know, the, the privileged subsets of our societies. So we don't have to worry about where our next meal is coming from. And so instead we worry about what kind of work is more purposeful than what other kind of work. That's a very unstable attitude. You know, it'll go away like this if all of a sudden there's another major economic collapse. So that's one answer. The second answer is I think that women care more than men about doing work that makes a difference. And as women form a larger and larger percentage of the workforce, they demand that their work matter. And if you want to hire talented people, you're going to have to organize your workplace so that these kinds of people will be attracted to it. And that may be permanent. And why it is that women seem to care more about this than men, I don't know. But I think there's reasonable empirical evidence that they do. Uh, so, you know, when half of the people getting law degrees are women, law firms have to think not just about how many billable hours they generate, but in whose service those billable hours are, you know, being uh, accumulated. Are they making the world better or are they making the world worse? And if they're making the world worse, they'll, they'll find it hard to hire the people they most want. So that's, I think, the feminization of the workplace has, had, has really made a contribution to people's having higher aspirations about, excuse me, what their work life will be like or could be like. Definitely an interesting term, feminization of the workplace, uh, that I hadn't heard before. I've ordered the latest book, um, but I'm, so I'm looking forward to reading it afterwards. In it, though, is um, the area of emotional intelligence addressed much in that? Is that an area you've looked at a lot? So yes and no. Emotional intelligence is something of a slogan. I wrote a, another book that you probably haven't read called Practical Wisdom. I wrote it with a colleague. And the argument there is very much taken uh, parasitic on, on uh, work that Aristotle did 3,000 years ago. Um, the argument there is that when we want to get people to do the right thing, the tools we rely on are either a set of rules, do this or else, in other words, a set of sticks, or a set of carrots, do this and you'll get a bonus, do this and you'll get a promotion. And what we don't focus on is how do you cultivate in people the desire to do the right thing because it's the right thing. Not because failing to do it will land you in jail and not because failing to do it will get you fired, but because you're there to do the right thing. Um, but what exactly does it mean to do the right thing? And here the, the, the argument we make is that there aren't formulas. When a doctor is talking to a patient who has a serious disease, how should that conversation go? Should it be brutally honest? Should the doctor pull his punches? The answer is... It depends. You know, if you know the person well, you'll know this is a person who needs brutal honesty. But that person, brutal honesty will just destroy. So there's no reason to find a way to 
to, to give the bad news with a, enough of a sugar, sugar coating that they won't be totally devastated and yet with enough clarity that they will take the steps they need to try to treat the disease, you know? So, so you need to understand the people you're talking to. You need to be able to empathize. You need to be able to take their perspective. All of that is what emotional intelligence is about. We don't talk about it as emotional intelligence. We talk about what it takes to have successful interactions with other people uh, with the aim of serving their their needs. And in the book and from your approaches, do you, do you, I don't know if debunk or demystify the term emotional intelligence? Is it something you believe in though as a framework? Well, I certainly believe that emotional intelligence is a real thing. I don't know that it, it coheres, that, that, it always means the same thing when you're talking about people who do or don't have it. And I'm not sure I believe strongly that there are individual differences in it that are essentially as rigid as the differences between people and how tall they are. So I think emotional intelligence can be nurtured, can be cultivated, uh, that people can get better at understanding the world as other people understand it. And we ought to spend a lot of time working on achieving that. The trouble with emotional intelligence as a label is that it's too much of a slogan, you know. So I'd rather say we need people who can take the perspective of other people better than many of us can. That's a very specific, substantive claim. Now, it's part of emotional intelligence. But when you read emotional intelligence, you don't know exactly what it is people are talking about. So perspective taking is a, a critical component of what it takes to be successful in your interactions with other people. You need to do it to be a good spouse. You need to do it to be a good friend. You need to do it to be a good parent. You need to do it to be a good teacher. You need to do it to be a good supervisor. I don't know how you can serve any of those roles effectively if you can't take the perspective of the kids you're raising, the spouse you're living with, uh, and the employees you're supervising. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's a good answer, and I'll, I'll check out that other book as well, because uh, anything I, 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 I'm a big fan of the competencies, I suppose, as part of emotional intelligence and trying to develop them in others in, in coaching mm -hmm. scenarios, um, and it's always to talk to somebody like yourself to get your perspective is, is great to, to have a, a different view, um, for, for sure. So at the weekend, I googled... The, the term paradox of choice and you know even in the last couple of weeks there's articles that are referencing it it's still so relevant today than you know 15 or so years ago and i know you're nodding there you're probably uh, an idea that will not die <laughs> and that's a great thing though right it's uh oh, absolutely well yes and no you know i mean if people had read the book and taken it seriously when i wrote it 15 years ago uh, Netflix wouldn't be running the way it runs and Walmart wouldn't be running the way it runs and Amazon wouldn't be running the way it runs. So the fact that it's still relevant is a sign that people who could be helping us are choosing not to. In fact, they're making the problem worse. Do you think and they're doing so that? That, it's nice to know that I'm still relevant. On the other hand, it would be nice to know that people had learned the lesson and they had largely solved the problem. And on that one, though, do you think 
you know, I'm sure somebody in Netflix at the senior leadership table has heard of or read the book. And why why would they not? Why would they consciously choose to ignore it? You know, I wonder is there is there a is there a kind of a underlying um, thought process going on there? I wonder. Well, it's interesting. I know that when when Netflix started, we actually tried to get them to um, uh, let us do do research on their site. And well, they didn't even have a site then; they, it wasn't streaming. It was about Videos you know those little envelopes DVDs, that people. Yeah. Um, and uh, they research everything, so they're incredibly data driven. And the sense I got from talking to them is that we there's nothing we could do that they hadn't already thought about and studied. So they were not terribly interested and nothing got done. My sense of why they failed to take my advice is that if you ask most people, would you rather have a lot of choice or a little? Most people will say, the more choice I have, the happier I am. In other words, people are acting against their own interests. And so if you're trying to serve your customers, what you're going to do is give them 8,000 movies to choose from because that's what they tell you they want. Now, if you um, take full advantage of the algorithms that Netflix has and you review things after you've seen them, most people don't. You're going to get, although all eight or 80 or 800,000 movies are there, you'll see a highly curated and organized list based on your own previous pattern of, of uh, choice and your ratings. And so they, can, they have the best of both worlds. We have everything, but we're not going to show you everything. We're going to show you the 25 things that we have reason to believe you'll be interested in. Um, and I think they underutilize the organizational potential of the web. You know, when somebody walks into a store, you can't rearrange the store for every customer. So you're stuck. It's going to be perfect for some people, horrible for others. But online, you can rearrange the store for every customer. You know, it doesn't cost anything. And what that means is that you can turn any online portal into a boutique. And not only that, but exactly the right boutique for you and exactly the right boutique for me. And I suspect that what will happen as, you know, as sort of AI gets better and better is that this organizational potential will be better utilized and we will stop torturing people by giving them too many options. But that won't, you know, there's a button on most websites that says show all. Nobody should ever click that button, but people do. And as long as that's true, there's going to be powerful, a powerful to basically show off how much they have to offer you. So we are willing, we are, we are willing co-conspirators, I would say, as customers in the, in making this problem worse rather than better. But I think the very first thing you said, though, is, and that's what would before I read your book, and you know, I probably had a an instinctive feeling that I'm overwhelmed by choice. But when when it's been laid out so well and backed up by research, it it makes so much more sense. So it's it's an educational thing that yep. people just need to be more consciously aware that 
it's not always a good thing or very rarely a That's good right. thing to have. You know, I've gotten you know, hundreds of emails over the years since my book came out, uh, you know, sort of acknowledging that I had somehow seen into, into their souls and found what was torturing them and put a label on it and it gave them a kind of clarity that they didn't have before and they were incredibly grateful and they were looking to ways to simplify their decision making and all that stuff and it was very gratifying. And even if they all actually did it, you know, that's 200 people out of 3 billion. So, so there's a lot of work left to be done. No, but uh, you, you hit it there. Like, I think I read a book called Quiet a couple of years ago by Susan yes. Cain about in, introvert. And, and yeah. it, it, it kind of hit me in a similar sort of way um, that it put put a, a term for a lot of the things that I, and I knew what an introvert was, but I think I suppose I identified more with it after reading it. Yep. Um, so it's a terrific book. Yeah, yeah. Very and justly good. successful. Yeah, I'm still trying to get Susan on the podcast, though I haven't had her, her yet. <laughs> tell you got me, maybe that'll help. I will, I'll definitely send her a, a link to, to this one when it comes out. Um, when you were putting it together, uh, the original version and maybe the, the revised, was there any kind of standout aha moments for you when you were collecting it, collating it, and things that emerged and say, ah, that, that it kind of thing started to fall into place for you? Well, there are a few things. One is um, unpacking the relation between our the value we attach to freedom and choice. Because I think a lot of what drives us to want more rather than less choice is that we somehow think that the, what it means to say that people are free is that they have choices. And anything that anyone does, government, private company, anything that anyone does to limit my choices is limiting my freedom. And so in Western democratic societies where there's such a premium placed on freedom, uh, you would expect that people go into situations wanting to have all the constraints removed so that they are completely free to make the, the, make the purchases they want and live the lives they want. You know, so I think that was one um, insight. The, the biggest aha, though, was understanding how people's criteria in making decisions exacerbate or mitigate the choice problem. And so there's a chapter in the book on the difference between maximizing and satisficing. And that's work that uh, that stuff is my own work. Yeah. Uh, though other people have picked up on it. Um, and what I came to realize is that if you think your task is to find the best, then the choice problem is just uh, not overcomable because the only way to know you've got the best is by examining every option. When there are only two options, that's not a problem. But when there are 2,000 options, it becomes not only a problem, but a problem you can't solve. If, however... Your, your goal in making a decision is to find a good enough option. You don't have to look at every option. You just look until you find something that meets your standards and then you stop looking. And so having that orientation to decisions, I want a good enough restaurant, a good enough vacation, a good enough pair of jeans, uh, dare I say, a good enough spouse. Uh, you know, going through life in that way makes what would otherwise be an un, 
unbelievably complicated um, uh, problem into a more manageable one. And when people hear that, they hear satisficing as meaning settling. Who would settle for a job? You don't want to settle for a job. Who would settle for a romantic partner? You don't want to settle. And it doesn't mean settling. Your standards can be quite high. But there's a big difference between having high standards and only the best will do. And um, when, if you can, if you can convince people that satisficing, looking for good enough, is the right strategy virtually all the time, you will enormously relieve their choice burden. Uh, so it wasn't totally obvious to me when we first started doing research on this, what the, how, they, how maximizing and choice overload were interconnected. It became increasingly clear to me that they are. So when people ask me, you know, what advice will you give, do you give people in a choice saturated world? I say, well, I think the single most important thing you can do is remind yourself that good enough is almost always good enough. And if you live your life in that way, many of the choice problems that paralyze people will stop paralyzing people. Yeah, I've come to call myself a good enoughian uh, over over the last while. And <laughs> there's there's a concern, I suppose, that comes up though. If if you were in an interview or you're at work and you you are saying, "Hey guys, I'm I'm just looking for good enough here. I don't want perfect." That that and I know you you distinguish between maximizer and perfectionist in the book as well. Uh, you know. Again, maybe it goes back to education of people that perfect doesn't exist and you're never going to be happy if you do that. But I, I get the sense of if I was doing a job interview and I said, like, I'm, I strive for, for good enough as opposed to strive yep. for perfection, that you don't, you don't want to kind of give that impression that you're not, uh, you know, detailed orientated or whatever. That's just something that came up for me. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't think, I think only a fool would do a job interview and say, in the, my work, I look for good enough solutions to problems. You know, goodbye, have a good life. Yeah. We're going to hire somebody else. No, it's A, it's a deep misunderstanding. You know, there's a slogan, the perfect is the enemy of the good. When you're trying to solve a complicated problem and you want the perfect solution, you end up with no solution. And, of course, that's true. But, you know, that's a slogan that operates at 30,000 feet. How does it translate into the actual decisions that people are forced to make? And I think it doesn't operate unless you're so constrained because you're in a negotiation and everybody wants something different. You realize you won't be able to get the perfect outcome because the people you're negotiating with have a different idea of what the perfect outcome is. So you say, well, the perfect is the enemy of the good. So I'm going to, you know, negotiate the best um, the best deal I can, which is not the best deal I could imagine. So, so, but in the absence of those constraints, if you're buying jeans, you know, where, what does it mean to say the perfect is the enemy of the good? You know, you just keep looking until you find the perfect pair of jeans or the perfect restaurant or what have you. So it's a very hard thing to convince people of. Interestingly, we find that older people are more likely to be satisficers than younger ones. And my interpretation of that, and it's speculative, is that one of the things that life teaches you is that good enough is almost always good enough. 
And eventually you stop pursuing the best because it's simply not worth the effort and the anxiety. And the result, by the way, is that older people tend to be happier than younger people. And I don't think that that's an accident. That's interesting. I had that question. Where, when what does age come into it? Uh, and and I think you've just you've just definitely answered it there. Um, the older you get, the the more of a satisfier you you prefer. That's what seems to be the case. There's not a huge amount of research on this, but what little research there is suggests that we learn to lower our standards as we get older. Mm. There's so many things in the book that uh, I could ask you, and I don't want to kind of go into too much more detail hopefully whet some people's appetite one thing that came up for me reading it though there's a con- a term again maybe that i use in coaching is called the locus of control um yeah you're familiar with that and and there's there's when i was reading it that was coming up a little bit that sometimes maybe when when choices you know you're you're taking it an internal locus of control versus an external that the choice was taken away or you're blaming somebody else for making it was that anything that came up during the the process not really but i do think it's relevant to the general issue of freedom um if you think about freedom as absence of constraint then you've got you're pretty much operating with a strong kind of internal locus of control i am the master of my fate and as the master of my fate i want all the options displayed so that I can make the decision I think is best and take, you know, uh, accept responsibility for it and and take ownership. Um, And when uh, when the world limits my options, then much more uh, of the many more of the decisions I make are essentially imposed on me by external forces that I don't control. So I do think that in internal versus external locus of control is relevant to helping us understand why people want so much freedom of choice. Because we've all, you know, and, and here's another, uh, another domain where I think it's relevant. This is maybe u- unique to the U.S. or at least especially dramatic in the U.S. There's incredible competition among students to get into the most selective universities. Stanford rejects 95% of its applicants, even though virtually everyone who applies would be fine. Uh, Harvard rejects 93% of its applicants, even though everyone who applies would be fine. Uh, And I wrote an article some years ago that suggested that the way admissions should be done is you look at every candidate and you make a binary decision. Good enough to be successful at my school, not good enough. And then you take all the ones who you think are good enough and you put their names in a hat and you select them randomly. So you make it a lottery. It's not a complete lottery. You have to meet some standard to get into the lottery. But once you've met the standard, it's luck. And when I present this idea... You can't imagine the resistance I get from admissions people, from parents, from kids. I don't want something as important as that to be determined by luck. And I say, well, here's the sad truth. It already is determined by luck because so many of you are so good 
that there's no real principal reason for saying yes to you and no, and no to your friend. So it is basically a random process among a highly select group of people. So face up to it, acknowledge it, and then you can relax in your last two years of high school instead of driving yourself crazy. And I think this is true of university admissions. I certainly think this is true when it comes to applying for jobs. You know, Google gets whatever, 400 applications for a job. How many of those people do you think would do the job? Well, if not 400, 300, 200, whatever, some large number, larger than one. (laughs) But so it's effectively a lottery there, too. And, you know, the pressure that it puts on people to find a way to make themselves look just a little tiny bit better than everybody else is crazy and unproductive. So and I think this has a lot to do with locus of control. Nobody is willing to accept that important things in life happen by chance, even though it is as plain as the nose on my face that important things in life happen by chance. I became a psychologist because of the person who happened to be teaching the introductory course when I took it. I had never heard of him. I had never heard of psychology. He was inspiring, and the entire course of my life was changed. Do I take ownership of that? Of course not. I was lucky. I am willing to take ownership of at least acknowledging that I recognized a good thing when it smacked me in the face. But, but I didn't go out into the world seeking that thing. And I think most of our decisions in life have that character and this persistent desire to be in control of everything thing deludes us into thinking that we have more control than we actually do yeah there's definitely a pattern in the work you've done to try and shine that light on things that people probably are uncomfortable owning up to right or admitting to in lots of ways yep i guess i do do some of that (laughs) but you're doing it i think for the right reason because ultimately it's going to make them happier in 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 line with the paradox of choice right hey hey, by the way if you just lower your expectations you'll be happier so stop trying so hard to keep it high you know so that's absolutely the case i think you know i have a i have i have a secret that i want to share and i think if people uh uh are willing to accept it they will discover that um, they're making maybe even better decisions than they made before, and they are certainly feeling better about the decisions that they make. That's right. Very cool. Can I ask you just uh, three quick ones before we wrap up? Sure. What are you working on now that you're hoping to kind of share, or is there anything current that's coming yes, soon? There is. So it's related to choice. Um, with a former student of mine named Nathan Cheek, we've done a bunch of studies that explore the following uh, argument. When all you've got is two kinds of genes to choose from, the genes you choose do not say much, if anything, about who you are as a person. There isn't enough variation in the world to capture the variation of individual people. However, when there are 2,000 kinds of genes, well, now when you buy genes, not only are you putting uh, clothes on your back, but you're also making a statement to the world about who you are. And so the argument we make is that as the number of options goes up, even trivial choices become important because they become reflections of identity. 
you know, and what jeans you wear is not that important when it's just about jeans, but when it's about who you are in the world, well, now it's important. And so what we've now got a lot of evidence for is that that story I just told you is true. People think when the choice set is large, their choices reflect something about who they are. And when the choice set is small, their choices don't reflect something about who they are. And I think this is really important because it helps us to understand why people want such large choice sets and why people drive themselves crazy to make the right choice, even when the it's, it's about something that's really pretty inconsequential. Mm. So what we're basically arguing is that there are no inconsequential choices when every choice you make is a statement to the world about your identity. So that's what I'm working on now. I think it's potentially quite important. Um, we're about to submit our first article to a journal. Uh, hopefully it, they'll take it, and then people will start thinking about this more. Cool. Very nice. We've talked a lot about books. Have you read a book in the last six months, 12 months that has had an impact on you? And what, what is it, if so? Uh, I am. I, well, I'm currently reading a book that's quite interesting. I haven't finished it yet. So I, I largely stopped reading books because I find myself falling asleep. And if. You know, I typically read books at night when I, when I go to bed. And if you read five pages before falling asleep, it's going to take you a long time to finish your book. So I tend to read articles rather than books just because of Even my advancing age and, and how easily books can get me sleeping. But there's a new book called The Economist's Hour by a guy named Benjamin Applebaum, who is on the editorial board of the New York Times and used to be one of their economics reporters. And it's an attempt to capture when the world started listening to economists and taking them seriously, which is a relatively recent thing, the last half century. So it's a, an attempt to provide a kind of contemporary economic history, the battle between conservative economic views of the world and liberal economic views of the world, how that has gotten played out in various government policies. And I think it's illuminating because so much of the life we live is, is lived in the shadow of what economists say uh, the world needs to be like and what economists assume human beings are like. So I think basically econ economics is the dominant social science of our era, and we should try to understand sort of its big ideas a little better than most of us do. Okay, very interesting. I'll, I'll put that. I have a, a a page on the website around uh, book recommendations, so I'll I'll put that in there. Last one, uh, Barry, and again, thanks so much for this. I've really enjoyed listening to you. Let me just interrupt you. There's one other book that's worth mentioning. It's called uh, Rule, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers by Michelle Gelfand. And that book argues, it's really directly related to this notion of freedom. That book argues that if you look across countries and across states within the United States at various measures of well-being, if you if you characterize societies as either being tight or loose, 
Tight means very much governed by rules, by social norms and so on. Loose meaning everybody gets to do more or less what they want. What she finds is that when societies are too loose, too tight, people suffer. They can't be who they want to be. But when societies are too loose, people suffer. They can't figure out who they want to be. And so what's optimal is some middle ground between anything goes on the one hand and nothing goes on the other. Uh, And that to me is extremely illuminating because that's exactly the way I think about choice, that we need choice. Choice is a good thing, but there can be too much of a good thing. We need freedom. Freedom is a good thing, but there can be too much of that good thing, too. And her book basically documents that. So that's a, a book worth reading. Very good. We've got two two for the price of one there, so that's that's brilliant. Um, as I said, it's been a really great experience to to listen to you talk, get some of your insights, you know, bring the book to life even more. As I said, I'm looking forward to reading some of your other uh, material, Barry. Um, lastly, in in one minute, I, I do a little one minute video on a Monday. Uh, it's kind of one minute Monday helps people get their week going. Quick piece of advice, a tip, or or something that they could think about to put them in a better place for the week ahead. In a minute, what, what, what comes up and what piece of advice could you pass on? Okay, I'll give you two quick ones. Whisper to yourself all the time that good enough is virtually always good enough. That's one. And two, ask yourself in your work life, not uh, how can I find meaning, but how can I make meaning? Because often there's a lot more opportunity to turn your work into meaningful work than people appreciate. And they think they have to keep hunting until they find it rather than asking, how can I transform what I do so, so that there's more meaning in it? So, so how can I make my work more meaningful is better than how can I find work that is more meaningful? Those are my tips. Brilliant. Two tips for One Minute Monday this week. And uh, two, two tips for the price of one. Excellent. Barry, great stuff. Thanks so much. Uh, pleasure talking to you. I'll definitely look forward to sharing this and um, hopefully, and I'm pretty sure a lot of people will find it very interesting and hopefully they go and purchase the books. If people want to get your material, where would they best go to do that? Uh, it's all on, I mean, everything's available on Amazon, of course. Too much so, choice on Amazon. <laughs> Perfect. I'll I'll send them there. I'll send links, um, but uh, I'll put the names of the books we talked about in links there as well. Thanks so much, Barry. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Great to talk Thank to you. For reaching. Yeah, it was lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. So this is the outro of the podcast, guys. You got to the end, and that is great. Please hang in here for another couple of minutes. I know most people won't, but maybe there's something here of interest. So check this out. First off, thanks so much for listening to this one, as well as maybe the hundred or so that's gone before it. Why not check them out if you haven't already? There's lots of good stuff in there. The whole podcasting journey for me has been a huge learning, and I'm trying to help you guys learn and improve as well. So much has changed over the last few years since I started it. I've really realized lots of the goals that I put out there and then realized so many unexpected benefits as well. And I think anytime you take on action towards a goal, you're going to pick up lots of things that you didn't expect along the way. And hopefully they're good things. In this particular episode, was there any one or two things that jumped out? Maybe you could take a pen and paper out right now because this is something that you might think of during the episode but never do. Do it now. Take it out. Write down 
a goal that you're going to set yourself as a result of something you learned from this episode put a plan in place and then work towards it applying yourself deliberately over time take ownership build a habit improve get one percent better share accountability with somebody you know in a buddy system and learn and grow and improve that's what it's all about that's my hopefully inspirational piece done other areas to note check out the website robofthegreen.ie you can consume everything there for free there is obviously the podcast there's video one minute monday clips there's articles uh, not enough but i'd like to put more there if you're interested in putting one there let me know and there's a get better at page which i'm starting to add new content to over time there's a feedback page if you want to email me rob at rob of the instead but it's all about trying to engage you and get you to a place of improvement so i'm open to feedback as i said ways you can help me is by following me on the socials at rob of the is the website or at rob of the green on all the social platforms subscribe to the podcast on any of the apps that you might listen to it on talk about it tell a friend about it tell your family members about it share some of the ideas not only to your friends but to me is there anything i can improve upon sign up to the newsletter that's there as well i'm experimenting again with a group called slack rob of the green on slack this is really for a shared accountability environment and sharing ideas you can sign up to that on the website as well all of this is obviously all free but there is also an option where you could subscribe to my patreon site and make a small donation for the content that we do it's there it's totally up to you everything that is coming in through that or could come in through that will go into making the podcast better so to close i am always trying to improve and get better change is difficult i know that but it's all about taking the first step learning something applying yourself moving forward you can do this i've been able to improve pushing myself outside the comfort zone learning and i think if i can do it so can you don't overreach don't set yourself unrealistic goals one percent at a time is enough but it's all about starting and that will bring you on your pursuit of betterness to a great place thanks for sticking to the very end talk to you next time and take care good luck